Well, welcome to another uh, podcast of Northern Conversations, and and I have my podcast partner Kelly Darwin, uh, CEO and owner of a Seriously Creative, a web design company and online marketer, and I myself, whom I decline to say identify what I do in these podcasts. I uh, am a labor market consultant and a commercial real estate agent and a bunch of other things that anyone throws at me. And we are extraordinarily lucky today again to have uh, Ellis Ross, the uh, MLA for Skeena, correct? That's right. Okay, fantastic. And and we we wanted to, to get you on board as 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 we all sort of collectively think that we were we are definitely at the end of the beginning and now I'm potentially at the beginning of the middle <laughs> in this health crisis <laughs> yeah. and 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 uh, folks are just starting to think about what what's next what does their economy look like what if what do our communities look like now in my role as labor market consultant I do a I do a lot of work uh, locally here on the peninsula trying to align industry jobs with our First Nations communities, uh, particularly uh, Mavis Underwood, Corrine Child of Atsewat, uh Christina Clark, Lyle Henry, Danny Henry of Songies, trying to find ways and opportunities to, to match what are really good paying jobs with our, with our First Nations communities. And over the last couple of months, I, I really noticed that, that that sort of went very quiet. And, mm-hmm. and almost reclusive. And so I started to reach out over the last 10 days, really, really unfortunately and, and heartbreakingly heard some very, very difficult stories about what was already a challenging scenario made even worse by COVID. So, so Ellis, you know, our hope today is to talk to you about what's going on provincially in your neighborhood up north with, with these communities, how they're handling COVID, and then, and then let's talk about about the economy and 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 what does that look like? When we last chatted with you, I think we were the eighty second or eighty third interview <laughs> around the around the, the pipeline and and the way that the committees were handling that. So, right. <laughs> I, I, I we're hoping that we're now one of the maybe the first half dozen this time around. Seems like years ago now, doesn't it? It wasn't it's that long ago. Time. Different time. Hey, Different right? Time. Yeah, definitely. You know, you know, I pointed out to my daughter because she, she's a young millennial and she was trying to figure out uh, all this stuff around the virus and the disruption and what's going to happen next, the uncertainty. So I explained to her, you know, th- there's not much you can do, but you can put in the context of witnessing history mm-hmm. the same way that I did. I witnessed the Berlin Wall coming down. I witnessed 9-11. And I always kept that in the back of my mind on where was I on 9-11? Where was, so you can put it in that context instead of deliberating over every excruciating detail that comes out every day, because that's just going to drive you nuts. Yeah. And there every minute, something new from the crazy man down South, every second, man, oh man. (laughs) So how are things up where you are? You know, it's, it's not bad. We went through a, a bit of a, uh, uncertainty there when we were just like everybody else the information was coming out in bits and pieces uh, social media wasn't doing us any favors with uh, all the like the information mm-hmm. but we fell into a rhythm you know we you know the the businesses around here started uh, adjusting they started putting arrows in there and people started to realize that social distancing is the best measure and so we so we got into it and at the same time the major industry here 
put in extreme measures to, to kind of limit the, the, the contact between people, but they didn't stop. Right. I mean, they laid off a lot of people. I mean, they, I think they went down to 60% of the workforce, but to their credit, uh, they made sure they had two priorities for, for local. Number one was local employment has to stay on. And number two, First Nations employment has to stay on. But they got, they, they laid off everybody else. So we haven't been doing too bad, not as bad as uh, some of the urban settings. And and that main industry, is that being LNG? Uh, LNG Canada, along with uh, its uh, contractor, Coastal Gaslink, who's building the pipeline, right. as well as Rio Tinto Alcan, who's the aluminum smelter company here in the last 70 years. So, I guess a lot of those places, they're, they're already decked out in a lot of protective wear and, and things like that. So I imagine the extra precautions while they're more than normal, maybe a little easier to get into place because they already have a, an infrastructure for it? You know, it was normal, but in talking with some of the employees, they, they said it was kind of uh, strange mm. because they weren't allowed to sit in the same seat in the pickup truck. One had to no sit in the passenger and one oh. had to be a driver. So you got a six passenger truck, pickup truck, and they're sitting diagonal on separate seats, two per pickup. <laughs> then in the buses, the, the buses they had running back to the work sites, they were they were had to sit all six feet apart. So they said that when you know you're going to and from work, it's in silence because you're not talking to anybody. It's and you're so separated. The bus isn't even half full, and you're not allowed to, to be anywhere near each other. Even when you're getting on and off the bus, you're not allowed to be anywhere near it. So that kind of camaraderie, you know, environment is not there anymore. You don't get the you know, fill your day up with a coffee and talking about with your buddies about what happened the night before and stuff like yeah, that. So yeah. In that respect, it was strange. And a lot more bus rides too then. A lot more bus rides. Yeah. yeah. We, we were talking about on the South Island, how traffic is a lot less because we're a lot of people working from home, but I hadn't really thought about, about the camps and the factories and that. Yeah. Well, we're, we notice a lot of uh, traffic. But, you know, interesting enough, though, uh, my village, I stay in my Kitimat village. It's a reserve on the west coast of B.C. Uh, my council went into a lockdown, and they put a roadblock at the border of our reserve. And it was trying to maintain the level of visitors coming in that has increased substantially over the last 10 years. But uh, they kept track of the amount of traffic going through. And I was, when they gave me some numbers, I was astounded. Because we're, we're, we got a little remote little road that comes off seven miles out of the municipality. And I think in one afternoon, I think they tracked 145 vehicles. Wow. That is crazy for a, yeah. for a, smaller, <laughs> a smaller reserve. That's just, just residents coming and going? It, it was a lot of different people because uh, slowly they started to let back uh, workers that were non-residents back into our community. Uh. Like to keep up with the construction, keep up with the administration. And they, they started, but it had to be uh, verified what you were doing and where you were going, and you had to yeah. stay away from the residents, whatnot. Yeah. Well, the uh, there were some local nations here that also blocked their their entrance to their communities, and and it was um, in large part around the fact that you know there's sort of three core uh, tools one can use in this health crisis: that being wash your hands, 
social distancing, don't touch your face. That's kind of the, you know, the bottom line stuff, right? And there are some folks who just refuse to do that. <laughs> and, and, and when you have a house with a lot of people in the house, then, uh, and some folks are, are not um, disciplined or want to do that, then that becomes a problem. And so there were, there were not, therefore the spread of, a, of the virus could be, could be violent, you know. And so how have you heard that amongst other communities in BC? Have you had, uh, is, is, that, is that common that, that most of the nations were, were trying to um, filter who was coming in and out, so to speak? Oh yeah, and that, that's what caused the, the most controversy because when you're shutting down a community, uh, it's understandable. But in that same, in that same voice, you know, the, you were actually shutting down access to a non-First Nations community, which was actually troubling for the non-First Nations. And say, we can understand you don't want us in your community, but to shut down a non-First Nations community just because some of your members live there, that's not fair. So I was watching both sides of the argument here, and it's, uh, it, it came down to really uh, politics and vagaries about the Indian Act and, uh, and number one, about safety. And I just watched the conversation and just, you know what, this is a brand new issue. So there are no real answers just yet, but we do understand the concern. Yeah, there, there are some sectors of our economy that are, that are thriving. And, and some of those manufacturers are, are on the peninsula being around uh, house renovations, around working in the garden. So, <laughs> you know, slag supplies are, are busy as stink. Any, any a company that is uh, around food manufacturing is extraordinarily busy. Mm -hmm. And so we have a company out here on the peninsula called Epicure. They need 50 people and Slag is 30. And I'm really struggling with, with attracting or engaging our, our local nations because of this issue. You know, the, the health, the health and, and I totally understand that the health piece is first. And so I really look forward to continuing a dialogue and understanding the, the culture and the environment from their end. So, so you know, when this, when this all started, uh, I could see society shutting down. I could see the economy shutting down. And I was trying to put it in perspective that, that, that I could understand so that uh, the, the government could actually make some decisions for the long term. And the, the only way I could figure it out was... You know, apart from the virus itself and then, the, you know, the safety issues around spreading it, we really got to think about this as a disruption in the same manner of technology disruption. You know, the radio got taken over by TV. TV got taken over by video games. Video games got taken over by Internet. And when, when you have that disruption, some industries actually get phased out. Yeah. You know, yeah. and then there's a new economy. Yeah. And so I, in thinking about this, I can't help but think, there's going to be a new economy coming out of this disruption. I don't know what it is. Is it around safety equipment? Is it around masks? Is it is, is this going to be the new normal, doing video interviews and all that kind of stuff and communicating? And, and the BC legislature is going to get back in the middle of June. And it's going to be a hybrid of uh, video conferencing and in-person. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be, that is going to be one weird experience. It's going to be hard so, to yell, yell at people through video. <laughs> How do you heckle? How do you heckle, right? Do so you type in your heckle and hope it gets up on the screen? <laughs> well, you know, we've we've heard uh, through our various conversations, and it's been with like likely a dozen mayors and 
bunch of business people down here uh, uh, sort of trending around around what a new economy might look like. Now there's a digital component and, and maybe Kelly can talk to that uh, in a few minutes around how companies are adapting that his had to, and he continues to have to think about what that looks like. But there's certainly a move towards bringing the offshore su supply chain to, to back home, specifically around food production and around potentially medical manufacturing. So bringing the, the offshore supply chain here and that looks like light manufacturing. And, and so that could really, really change our economy in a big way. And then secondly, uh, actually operationalizing uh, climate change. Let's just not say it. Let's actually put business plans around it. Let's actually see what that looks like as a business. Can it make money? And then the third piece uh, that we've heard from everyone is how do we better engage our First Nations communities? And those become the three thrusts that we've at least generalized. Uh, and within that becomes, you know, a bunch of agriculture-related stuff and food stuff, et cetera. So I, I've got the same uh, opinion. I mean, it basically, and the government's going to do what they think the citizens uh, really want. And, and, and the consumer's going to drive it. That's what's really going to happen. And I, I really think you take that principle and you apply it to the energy sector, which then, which then becomes, number one, you get all those uh, communities that are actually burning diesel right now to produce electricity. Yeah. Get them off that. Yeah. Get them burning natural gas. We've yeah. got we got the supply. Yeah. Which boy, do we ever? <laughs> right. And we yeah. and we can we can build the, the network. We can build the infrastructure. The private sector wants to do this. And the other side of this is uh, I like the idea that Canadians are talking about manufacturing more at home and going back to what actually helped build this country. I agree with that. But you've got to keep an open mind. You've got to be bold and you've got to be able to be willing to pull a trigger on some of this stuff. Specifically, you know, I've known for probably over a decade that if you take all the byproducts out of natural gas and you take it out of there, Number one, you send a cleaner burning gas to Asia so they can burn clean natural gas without all the impurities. And then the byproduct you take out, I didn't even realize this, but the, the byproduct, one of the byproducts is ethylene. Hmm. And ethylene, you take it over, you, you put it into a plant, and then you start to, to manufacture polymers. Now, people think about polymers and automatically you think plastic bags, shopping. Oh, well, it's more than that. You know, Boeing is interested in a high-grade polymer for the airplanes. The wow. auto industry, whether it be electric or gas or diesel, they're always interested in polymers to make their vehicles lighter and more efficient for fuel use. So this makes sense. And we got some entrepreneurs here in BC that want to take this idea and help build BC a manufacturing sector using the byproducts mass of gas. I think this is a great opportunity. Totally, totally. Uh, such opportunity for innovation, such opportunity for new risk. Uh, Kelly, yeah. how, how do how do things look on the on the technology side and the technology integration side, which is well, kind of a lot of. I mean, we've been talking about this a lot, and from our business, we're we're already taking these steps to to say, well, it's maybe not a uh, this term new normal. We're already doing it, right? Right now, what we're doing every day becomes normal because we're all doing it. And one of the things we've talked about um, a lot in the last couple of weeks is that that same hybrid approach to our office space. 
just just like you're you're saying in the ledge is we're going to do a mix of zoom a mix of um maybe staggered office days for different people and, and even throwing around how many days a week do we go in do we stay home um, but what we found and and so we're we're a web development company and we deal a lot with small business who over the past eight to ten weeks a lot of businesses found out that they can't survive without well, obviously without customers, but they didn't have a backup plan without being allowed, allowing customers to walk through the front door. So now we're seeing maybe not everything can be e-commerce and we're certainly building a lot of that stuff, but it's what's the safest way to approach uh, curbside pickup? Or is there, is there other ways that businesses can engage where they can still do it in a safe manner, but looking towards phase three or phase four even how does that work? I got, we're not going to go back to the way it was. And a lot of our clients are saying, okay, we can't go to, to where we were, say, in December. But if we make these few changes and, and we, we adjust our business model, then maybe we can be even busier. And, and we've talked with a couple of different farms who this is what they're, they're finding out that it's, they can't keep up, right? Because they've done it right. They have the delivery, they have the pickup, and people are flocking to buy local, support local. And then what, what, what they find out is that it's a better quality. And I'm hoping that a lot of us, and, and we talk about bringing manufacturing and, and, and agriculture home back, back to, to BC, hopefully a lot of people realize better quality and they stick with it, right? Yeah. So even if we did go back to normal, I, I'm, I know I'm still going to get my meat from the, the farm. I'm still going to try to grow my own vegetables. And I think we're, we're maybe helping people through business and through innovating businesses to have a better, a, a better life than maybe we did before. That's synergistic, right? The Stephen Covey one plus one equals three thing. I, I, I hope that's where we're going. You know, in that context, uh, I've, I've been reading a lot of uh, these articles about what's going to look like after this, all this uh, virus issues start to die down and we start to focus more on a new economy, on a new society. And I, and I get this feeling that people are, are leaning towards government to kind of guide us in, in terms of the, the innovative future. Well, sorry to, to burst your bubble there, but government does not lead innovation. <laughs> Actually, government takes its cues from the private sector. The that private didn't burst sector, my bubble, right? <laughs> that didn't <laughs> burst my bubble. <laughs> Good governments take their cue from yeah. the private sector. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, the, you look at all the innovation that came up that that helped us. It all came from the private sector, and then the government said, "Yeah, we'll support it. We'll yeah. do this. We'll help you along." Well, I hope so that people happens. are thinking, "Yeah, well, it should," because we see, I've already seen already, the private sector is taking the, the guidelines given out by uh, the the health authorities. Yeah. And they're, they're finding innovative ways to actually to go by it. And at the same time, they're trying to figure out, you know, how do we capitalize our own business along with this new future that we actually got to finance as well. So, the, you know, it's going to take a lot of creativity. Uh, but at some point, if, they, if the private sector comes up with a plan on how to do this without going broke, the government's going to have to get in line and support it. That's very refreshing to hear. Because uh, because you know there there's a ton of a ton of innovation is going on as we speak, 
I mean, we, we continue, right, with businesses trying to figure out how to make this work. And we're almost creating the economy while other people are talking about what post-COVID is. There's a lot of people doing it. Exactly. And so, so very, very, well, Alice, you know, we can't wait to then maybe talk with you two, three months down the road, well, maybe sooner, and see where we're at, right? You know, and see where we're at in all of this. But we can't go in a podcast with you without talking about about the pipeline and the politics of the pipeline up up in northern BC and what happened what what seemed to be happened happening with with a complete reversal around around the elected uh chiefs and councils uh, having governance over over uh over how to manage the the pipeline in their territories to then the hereditary like a complete switch yeah. in seemingly isolation Talk to us. What happened? Where are we at? <laughs> you know, it's pretty unbelievable to, to, to think about the process and how it unfolded. Like, I understand the concept of rights and title. I understand that. And the underlying themes, uh, jurisdiction. I understand all that. I do understand the issue that the Wet'suwet'en are facing right now as well. Uh, the people themselves have not had a chance to decide who leads them. Is it their hereditary leadership? Is it elected leadership? Is it a hybrid of some sort? They haven't had that opportunity. In that same breath, they haven't had the opportunity to fully engage in what is one of the most important topics in First Nations country, let alone BC, which is rights and title. Yeah. I mean, BC treaty negotiations have been happening in BC now for what, 40, 50 years? Yeah. And you know, the biggest part of that is that it's, it's actually mandated in there that you have to talk to the membership. In this case here, the BCNDP, as well as the federal liberals, have not done that. They've just said, we're just going to negotiate with uh, five elected leaders from five separate communities, and we're going to ignore the people, the Wet'suwet'en people, and we're going to ignore the elected leadership. It's unbelievable that that process is unfolding in BC. And what, what, what strikes me about it is that Canadians, non-Aboriginals, don't understand how this is going to affect them. They don't understand it. Because this is a complicated topic. It's uh, legal in nature. It's going to cost millions of dollars to do it right. Unless, the, you know, the governments that are doing it just for political purposes. You know, whoever heard of a government doing something for political purposes, <laughs> right? <laughs> that didn't but cost you know, them somewhere. But, but you know, what? one of the complicated topics in treaty negotiations to settle a title is a responsible government will say, okay, how do we do this in a way that doesn't affect the rights of non-Aboriginals? How do we protect the Charter of Rights? How do we do this in a way that doesn't contradict the Constitution of Canada? And that's why treaty negotiation takes so long. So for these two levels of government to do this as a political initiative, you know, I'm not really concerned about the outcome at this point. I'm really concerned about how are you going to address all the issues on this, including how do you protect my rights as a, as a non-Watsutan member? Like, do I, when I go into Watsutan territory, do I have to follow a completely different set of rules? Or is the highway I'm on, is that under jurisdiction of somebody else now? Is the hydro line under the jurisdiction of somebody else that's actually owned and controlled by BC Hydro that services all of us? There's so many questions that come up. And this is why treaty negotiations, you know, inefficient as it may sound, it actually has a lot of serious issues that to address on behalf of all of us as British Columbians. So, so what do you see then as the near future here? And I hope, are you going to be involved? 
in some of the discussions around trying to make this stuff work. Are you? I hope so. Well, at this point, uh, you know, given how they're going to uh, resume sitting at the legislature, this will be a topic. But the government has the right to, to, to kind of keep this confidential. In fact, I've uh, in, in last year or the year that uh, we approved uh, the BCLNG agreement between the government and the, the, the LNG Canada, there was previous legislation that said, if you're going to sign a multi-billion dollar major project agreement with a private developer, then the BC government, by legislation, has to bring that agreement to the legislature. And you have to disclose it to the legislature. You have to debate it. Right. <laughs> it was actually the BC Liberals that brought this in. Yeah. Well, the BC NDP tried to get rid of that legislation inside this LNG Canada agreement. And we fought it tooth and nail. And uh, because the Green Party didn't want to vote against the NDP, when it came down to voting on that specific clause, the Green Party left the room. <laughs> so the BC Liberals won that vote on that one specific clause. So the idea that uh, the government has to continue to bring major project agreements to the legislature, that still stands. Oh, fantastic. Mind you, I don't think this applies to a political agreement or a jurisdictional agreement around rights and title in the same manner as, say, uh, a signed agreement under the BC Treaty process would. So I think this is a gray area. It's brand new territory. Yeah. Nobody's ever really done this before as a government. So I... I don't think the rules are even in place on how to be open and transparent about it. Our podcast, uh, as, um, as, as what might seem a, a little media channel down here in Southern Vancouver Island, actually is, has been reasonably successful in reaching a digital audience. Uh, we're not exactly sure of the size, except anecdotally, we're, we're, we are assured that people listen, listen to the podcast. Uh, so you have a voice with us if you'd like to keep updating us on this issue, because it would appear that transparency is one of the key, un, you know, foundations of having a successful negotiation. Let's keep the information out in the open. We'll help you do that, else whenever you want. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it, you know, people rag a lot about uh, Indian Act councils, and there's a lot of misinformation about how to arbitrarily impose on First Nations. Not in my community. Our community actually petitioned the government for this style of governments. But under my uh, tenure there as a councillor as well as chief councillor, that's where I learned about the transparency of government and accountability. That's where I learned it. We actually had workshops in it. So when I came into the BC uh, legislature, I thought those principles were, were being employed in every manner in terms of governance. And I find later on, uh, actually, no, it isn't. In, in some cases, it's not. I truly believe in accountability, transparency, and openness. I truly believe in it. it. It's one of the principles that was taught to me under Indian Act councils. And that's actually what, you know, I, I relate to my people. I said, look, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. Yeah. And, you know, halfway through it, I'm going to come in and give you an update. At the end of it, I'm going to tell you, you know, uh, whether or not I was successful or not. But it's always about that communication and, uh, you know, the relaying of information to, to constituents. To the community, to the community, to the community. exactly. Yeah. I mean, in this I, case here, brand new territory, I don't see it. And when you don't have that on both sides of the table, I mean, it's, we're just, we're not going to get anywhere. It's going to be more of this back and forth and backroom deals and things that happen when, when they're hoping nobody's going to notice. Or, com or conversely, 
they might feel fully uh, uh, strengthened and empowered to make these decisions. Yeah. Uh, and then the the that's why the legislature exists for other folks to to debate that and to question it and 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 allow the public to see both sides of the the, of the story. And so, Ellis, uh, are you going to be on the are you going to be in the legislature or are you going to be on the Zoom video when that resumes? <laughs> you know, <laughs> they I, told you yet? <laughs> I, I, I've been questioning that a lot. Uh, I do want to be in the legislature in person, mm. uh, no matter what the conditions. But I do want to be home to, 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 to do the Zoom stuff, too. So what I'm, what I'm doing is, is I'm trying to review all the precautions that the BC legislature is going to put in place. Right. And uh, I want to be able to understand all of it so I can abide by it. And uh, Because people don't understand that when you go down to the legislature, you're not just interacting with other MLAs. You're interacting with your own staff. You're interacting with the BC legislature staff, the security, uh, the restaurant is open. Right. There's a lot of people down there. And then you got to sleep somewhere. So you got to go into hotels that are currently closed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but I hear they're going to open up on the 22nd, I believe. Totally. So I think they're, they're trying to time up the, the opening of the legislature with the hotels. Okay. Okay. Right. Well, we have a ton to talk about. Do you have anything else or would you like to, you know, we started out what you, Kelly and I, with about 11 or 12 listeners on our sort of family of podcasts. We're now at 32 bazillion, Ellis. Just, you know, FYI. <laughs> wow. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's, and that's incredible. Well, that's specifically, be <laughs> <laughs> that's specifically because we did not do it by video. I do not have a voice. <laughs> I look for video. We all have a face for, for audio. That's right. Audio, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, this is uh, very much appreciated. Let's touch base maybe six to eight weeks from now. And and just get an update on 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 these political issues up north, and in general, how is the economy uh, uh, emerging? What does it look like? And then what does it look like for First Nations communities in BC? Okay, we'll do. Thank you, Alice. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, guys. Yeah, take care. Thanks. Bye bye now. Bye. bye. bye.